Welcome to Criminalized. In this podcast, I examine what it means to be deemed criminal in America. I'm Sarika Ram. This episode is about Abrego Forrester and what it meant to be a black man targeted by the war on drugs in the 80s. If you look at a map of Boston, you can pretty much draw a horizontal line right through the middle that segregates the city along racial lines. In the northern half of Boston, you'll find a mix of college students and major universities like BU and Northeastern. Rich white families in the fancy parts of town like Beacon Hill and tourists visiting the Freedom Trail. Below this unofficial racial divide, you'll find a string of communities of color, Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. Boston is one of the most segregated towns in America, and that's because of a policy known as redlining. In short, banks have historically denied mortgages to black people living in communities of color. And white property owners have an ugly track record of not selling or renting to black families. On top of that, after World War II, the Federal Housing Administration provided subsidies to developers that were building large subdivisions on the condition that none of the homes could be sold to black Americans. The Fair Housing Act outlawed this type of discrimination in 1968, but there continues to be gaping racial disparities in lending that has resulted in modern day de facto segregation. This is important context to understand Abrigal's story and the social conditions that allowed for the war on drugs to so effectively target low income neighborhoods of color. So for you, what does it mean to be from Dorchester? Yeah. Um, what does it mean for be so so I'll I'll, I'll kinda like say like what does it mean for, to be from Dorchester, but more like like what does it mean to be from like Codman Square or like the four corners area of Dorchester? Because uh, every sort of area in Boston had its own sort of like social context. Like we were known in my neighborhood to be like the dressy guys, you know, the guys who matched everything, like matched your socks with your shirt or your, your sneakers and stuff. But, you know, uh, there was a lot of pride in growing up in this space, you know, and, you know, I consider it to be the area where I grew up in Common Square to be like a little Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn is like a melting pot of like uh, families who migrate from the West Indies. And like, you know, in Dorchester, in the space that I grew up in, there was a lot of like uh, West Indian families and American families, but it was also a blend of folks, you know, so... You know, there was a lot of pride growing up in that space. Um, you know, pretty much a good neighborhood, but again, low income. So you had variations of uh, people who were sort of like, you know, earning maybe like what I would consider to be a stable income, and then those who were like really struck by poverty. And a lot of times, those two entities, whether it was kids who had who are a little bit more privileged than others that clashed, or families who are a little bit privileged than other families that clashed, like all those dynamics basically existed in the space. Um, but I will say, like, in the 80s when the crack epidemic hit, you saw that, like, there were good, wholesome families that were turned up, torn apart by substance use. Um, and so that was very interesting as I reflect back. Crack cocaine is essentially a cheaper, stronger, smokable form of powder cocaine. And in 1985, crack appeared in high volumes in cities across the country. What came to be known as the crack cocaine epidemic disproportionately hit low-income black neighborhoods. And that's because the economic engine that had put food on the table for thousands of black families had suddenly stalled. American manufacturing jobs were moving overseas to countries with lower wages and weaker unions. What was left were white-collar jobs that required a college education and computer proficiency. The data provides a really clear picture of just how hard this economic shift hit black families. In 1970, more than 70% of all black men living in metropolitan areas held blue collar factory jobs. But by 1987, only 28% of those men were able to hold on to those positions. Many people marginalized by the mainstream economy resorted to drug dealing to support their families. Abregal describes drug dealing as a way for communities to create an economy of their own, one that would actually provide opportunities to people of color. During that time um, of the 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, you know, uh, conditions also um, 
validate uh, alternative approaches to things, right? And so, you know, you take the like the mid '80s, late '80s, when like they were sort of like um, the economy was sort of depressive at that time. Um, these were alternative ways where people were were earning money, were trying to sort of building and create their own economy within the economy that we know, right? And so they were, and so interestingly enough, you see that old that economy that was being built then, and now we're legalizing marijuana, and it's becoming a thing where folks are trying to figure out how to add how to add value from a financial monetary standpoint to the larger economy, right? But then it was illegal, and you know, so so these sort of subgroups or circumstances were coming out of you know, poverty, you know what I mean? Um, uh, people who are coming and trying to make their way. But for Abregal, drug dealing meant more than a path to socioeconomic stability. It also meant becoming part of a community that had his back in the face of what he calls social threats, like violence and incarceration. So I grew up in a, uh, uh, a parent, a mother-led home, <laughs> um, and one-parent home. Uh, my father was there, but he left when I was five, and so, and then I had mostly, I was have three sisters, three older sisters. Um, the youngest of my oldest sister is nine years older than me, so that was a lot of gap. And then also, like, a lot of my family weren't here in America. So, like, you know, basically, I, as a young male growing up in the house, I was, like, the only male, and my father was, like, you know, he was sort of, like, present but had a family right up the street, but he was, like, still, like, absent in essence because there was no real relationship after he, after he left. So, um it was challenging, you know, because I had no, you know, what people would consider to be protective factors. When you're growing up in an environment where there are all these sort of social dynamics, all these social threats, um, uh, families need protect protection, you know. Um, my mother had done well, you know, she was really a pretty, like, firm woman. Um, but there was a point where there was only so much a woman could do in the life of a young male growing up in a community that was really um, ridded with, like, you know, violence and testosterone-driven young males and adults, adult adult males, quite frankly. And so, like, I felt a little bit vulnerable, you know, susceptible and, and, and really um, uh, trapped to an environmental influence that, like, I had no control over. So that's where I would say, like, a lot of my social decisions um, in, a, in sort of what I would consider to be probably a deviant way started to kick in. And then you had, like, some older males who understood and was really attracted to me as a young male in a sense that, like, I carried myself a certain way. And they took interest in me, um, but they were also a part of a negative element. So they kind of was, like, negative mentors in a way, right? They were loving males in a sense that, like, they cared about my well-being, but their way of doing that was about teaching me how to navigate and address those social threats. <laughs> and so that means that, you know, the behaviors that they were sort of, like, trying to help me um, develop um, were, were negative attitudes and behaviors to some extent. Mm, so can you, is, is there a particular mentor that you'd be able to, like, describe? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I had a few, I mean, um, but I think the one uh, specifically, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll call him G. But <laughs> um, his, name his name starts with a G. But G was an interesting relationship. You know, I remember this gentleman was very known to be a very violent person. Um, you know, there was a point in my life where I was, like, really afraid to fight because there were a lot of people who had bigger brothers or cousins that could, if you beat them up, they could like show up for them. And I had no one to show up for me, right? I was growing up with sisters and, and didn't have like my uncles or cousins in the space. And um, I rem this relationship with G was very interesting because he, was, he, he took a liking to me. And, but his way of taking a liking to me had like these threatening yet caring dynamics. Um, you know, I remember he used to do things. He was really good at wielding a knife he was very he was really known for um, stabbing people and you know there were times where he would take me out and you know he might have an incident and something might go down and he may have to like you know stick somebody right and so that would be like whoa whoa what the hell just happened but then there were times where he would like pull out that same knife on me and he would threaten me with the same knife and it was like I would get so scared it like it was like the most scariest moment because we might be hanging in a hallway in my in my neighborhood and then all of a sudden out of nowhere he's like pull out that knife and he's just like and I used to be like so scared and sometimes I would bust out the hallway and run and then he would like laugh and like or he would just walk up the street and come see me but I didn't realize what he was doing with me at the time was trying to build up a lack of fear of knives and violence he was trying to build in me and then I remember one day um he came like what's full so at one point he realized that I was like sort of maturing in my sort of like um you know street flow <laughs> let's call it that right and 
came to my neighborhood. I was on, on the corner of my street hanging. And, you know, he came up to me. And he was like, yo, come here. You know, and he pulled out the knife. We, we, we went to like a sort of like a exclusive space, pulled out the knife. And like, I wasn't scared. And, he, and, then, and it was like he looked at me and nodded like, now you're good. You know, so that's a story that's like a negative mentorship piece. But like at that time, I needed that. You know, because I was, I was like, I needed that to survive. I needed that to get through. He knew what I needed, and he scared the life out of me in my in my developmental process. But he was trying to get me to a place, and that place got me to a place where I became immune in some cases to being afraid to stick my neck out there when it came to social threats. You know, um, I had older men too who taught me how to, you know, deal drugs. You know what I'm saying? Who took a liking to me for again? Like I, I was, I was, I had my my uh, my growing up was interesting for me because I had a profile that was pretty for some reason, very attractive to like, you know, but I was always like a, a good dresser. <laughs> I was like, I was, a, so like, I think that like brought certain attention to me. And like, there were older guys who helped me navigate other things, who taught me how to do other things like deal drugs. Like I remember um, this older gentleman who was Jamaican, you know, I'll call him Space for for, for lack of, he had a full uh, street title. And, you know, I remember him teaching me how to navigate and how to you know, sell marijuana. You know, like he taught me how to do that. He took it. In, he took it. And he's like, "Yo, you need to earn money. You got to earn money to be out here." You know what I mean? And and he taught me how to really like earn, to how to like juggle marijuana. So you know, and he was somebody I looked up to. He was like a father figure to me. You know, literally, like you know, as a person who checked for me every day, came through. You know, and I needed that in my life. So at that time, these people were people who were role models who were fulfilling a purpose um, above and beyond what I understood the long term residual impact would be. As Avrigal reflected on his life path, he shared with me a traumatic childhood experience that he says changed the trajectory of his life. I would say, like, for me, you know, one of the things that triggered my final sort of, like, commitment to um, being, or what I would call, consider to be in the street life was, you know, at 11 years old, I had this nameplate belt. Um, you know, his name played belt, you know, it's those, uh, people wear it now, but it was like, that was the style, you know, you put your name, your nickname in it. I had like a, 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 a money sign and a, and a Playboy sign on both ends as bookends of nameplate belt and it said Stiz on it. But I remember coming from a friend of mine's house um, who lived up the street, maybe like three blocks from me. And he used to walk, he usually walks me home half the way. Um, but that night he didn't walk me home half the way. And I was robbed at gunpoint, you know, a gentleman put a gun to my head walked up on me, told me to give him my belt. I said no, put a gun to my head, started pushing me in this alleyway, I ended up giving it to him. And that was like really traumatic for me. And that was like a turning point for me in the sense of saying like, yo, how are you gonna make it through this? You know what I mean? Um, and I never even, I, I, I shared it with my mom at one point, um, but like it was, that was like the final call, you know, in my wavering on whether, what I needed to do to survive the environment that I lived in. Abrigal's story, mirrors that of many people of color who have been incarcerated as a result of the war on drugs. Many racist politicians and journalists have pointed to the overwhelming black prison population and perpetuated racist, problematic images of black communities as rife with crime and illegal drug use. I asked Abrigal about his response to this unjust representation of low-income neighborhoods of color. I think there's a gross misinterpretation of what, of, of low-income communities, urban, urban dwellers or whatever you want to call it. I think there's a gross misinterpretation about the magnitude of people involved and not involved, right? It, a lot of times, the negative seems like it's much greater than the positive because it gets all the attention, right? So if you count households within, uh, on a street, right? Like if you counted the households on my street and you counted the households that had somebody in it who was dealing drugs in comparison to somebody in it who was going to work every day and their kids were going to school, like it would be a small percentage, right? And so if you take that as a cohort, right, and and do that street to street, you'll probably say 5% of the community is involved in comparison to the overall population. But when 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 what you see and the activities that you see is in your face more, right? Because like street life is in the streets. So because it's in the streets, it seems like it is the it is the um, the it's the majority preoccupied aspect of a community or of a people. But that's not the reality, right? There are that was drug dealing and that lifestyle and that community was a subset of a larger community that primarily had good people in it and had hardworking people in it. I can't stress Abrigal's point here enough. There's no doubt that black communities were hurt deeply by the crack cocaine epidemic. 
Data shows that black people disproportionately used and sold crack in the 80s. But when we're talking about sheer numbers, white drug users and dealers have always outnumbered their black and brown counterparts. In 1991, for example, 65% of reported crack users were white, while 26% were black and 9% were Hispanic. One nationwide survey showed that about 1 million white people reported selling drugs, but only about 250,000 black people. And yet, black people have been disproportionately arrested for possessing and selling drugs. At the peak of the crack cocaine epidemic, about 40% of people arrested on drug charges were black. That was about five times the rate of arrest for white people. Abregal was one of many in his community who was targeted for selling drugs. Uh, now moving on to the circumstances that led up to your mandatory minimum. So mm -hmm. I was wondering, uh, how were you first caught for what I understand is selling cocaine? Yeah, so what led up to me, um, so, you know, so at one point in my um, sort of um, uh, drug dealing career, <laughs> I, I, I was at the point where, like, I really wanted to turn my life away from all of that. I was, you know, I, I remember making an oath when I was a kid that I would never walk away from my child the way that my father walked away from me. And I was having a child. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was pregnant. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, having a child to me was, like, very critical. And I wanted to really change my life. You know, my thing was, like, I just, just you know, I didn't want to be a, a hypocrite to my child. And I decided that, like, I was no longer going to deal drugs. I was going to, like, take the little money I had and sort of try to try to make that money work for me and, and, and turn my life around. So I opened up a dry cleaners. I was, like, 19, opened up a dry cleaners. Um, a family friend ran a dry cleaning firm, meaning that they had, like, the machines and all that stuff. And my goal was to get to the point where I would have those the machines, but I could actually be a satellite site and use, the, use that firm to dry clean the clothes, so I found a space, that uh, area that didn't have any dry cleaners, which was in Jamaica Plain on South Street, close to Forest Hills, and I opened up the dry cleaners, um, but I wasn't used to my money getting low, and like, one of the things that had happened around that time as well was that, you know, DEA and federal agents were coming into the community in droves for, and running cases against groups, organized gr groups that were really organized around um, drug dealing, you know? And I was somewhat a part of a group that was pretty organized and didn't know that, like, um, the feds was actually um, in pursuit of folks that they had relationships with and that were a was a part of that. And um, I remember my money getting low, and I decided that I had a, a brand-new um, Jeep Laredo at that time, a Cherokee, and, and I wanted to get rid of it and get something that was a lot less. And I went to this dealer um, that I was familiar with, and a car dealer and was gonna trade that car in for a, uh, a four-cylinder car that would get me more gas miles and all that good stuff. But anyway, the guy that was there was actually someone who bought drugs from my, some folks in my community and started soliciting me to actually get drugs for him. And I denied him several times and then I finally said that I would do it. And then that led to, that, w that was what led to this case. I didn't know that like the feds was in town. Actually, the gentleman who put cocaine in my hand for the first time well, he was actually being pursued by the feds and actually had gotten the case and actually through this other gentleman turned them on to me and made it seem like I was the person who was like this high-level dealer and he got less time and I got 10 years. Um, actually, I got 16 years because it was 10 years with uh, six years ran concurrent. This arrangement that Abregal is describing here was and continues to be at the heart of the well-funded, targeted operation that is the war on drugs. Now, before hearing more about Abregal's story, we're going to take a hiatus to talk more about the context of the War on Drugs. The War on Drugs officially began in 1971, when Nixon made a historic declaration to the American public. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. 
it will be government-wide pulling together the nine different fragmented areas where, within the government in which this problem is now being handled. And it will be nationwide in terms of a new educational program uh, that we trust will result as, uh, from the discussions that we have had. As part of the war on drugs, Nixon established the Drug Enforcement Administration. The DEA was responsible for combating drug trafficking and bringing drug dealers to justice. Under Reagan, hundreds of millions of dollars were funneled into the DEA, and agents systematically bombarded low-income neighborhoods of color that were viewed as the hotbed of crack use and distribution. Residential segregation, which I described in the context of Boston at the beginning of this episode, made it possible for the DEA to so effectively target low-income communities of color. Like we heard about in Megan's story, the main tool that the DEA used to identify drug dealers was confidential informants, which are also called CIs or snitches. As a refresher, the way the arrangement typically works is the DEA arrests someone, usually on a drug trafficking charge, and then offers them a deal. Find us dealers and we'll reduce or even get rid of your sentence. And if you don't report on your friends and community members who are dealing, you'll be at risk of being hit with a harsh mandatory minimum sentence. Mandatory minimum sentences are another key tool that's been used to fight the war on drugs. Mandatory minimums are exactly what they sound like. Minimum prison sentences set by the government for certain crimes. Nixon was the first to pass a set of mandatory minimums for many drug offenses, and Reagan made them even harsher. Mandatory minimums have proven to disproportionately incarcerate low-income Black people. Heather Schoenfeld is an associate professor of sociology at Boston University. She explains how the introduction of mandatory minimums during the drug war disproportionately harmed Black communities and has contributed to the overall system of mass incarceration. It used to be um, in most places that, that sentencing was um, in part uh, determined by your behavior in prison. So you would get a sentence that was, you know, one to 25 years. I mean, at the most extreme, right? And this was true in places like California. Um, and that would be the sentence the judge handed down. And then it was up to corrections officials and the parole board to decide how much of that sentence you were actually going to serve. Right. And you can see why that may have been problematic. Right. It created the potential for racial disparities in how long people served. It created the potential for regional disparities in how long people served, you know, so versus the cities versus rural areas. Um, and so there was a move in the 1970s to uh, rein in that type of discretion so that corrections administrators and parole boards wouldn't have that type of discretion anymore. And this is where the idea of sentencing guidelines came from. Sentencing guidelines looks at the um, current offense, the severity of the current offense, and then prior convictions, and specifies a range, uh, you know, a much tighter range under which a judge will, will sentence people. Um, and in fact, sentencing guidelines, if they are stuck to, <laughs> have been shown to actually um, moderate prison populations. Um, the problem is that we mostly haven't stuck to them. Um, and so, or we've continued to increase the ranges and the, the length of time people have to spend. Um, and so around this time of the war on drugs, the idea of mandatory minimum sentences really took off. Um, it was something that had been pioneered in New York in the 1970s, but hadn't really been used that much. Um, but states and the federal government started saying, okay, we want to take all discretion away from judges and these other corrections actors, um, and we want to make sure that people are serving this minimum amount of time. And it was really sort of a symbolic move that had um, huge consequences for the prison population and for particular um, defendants. 
Yeah, so thinking about it, you would think like if there's mandatory minimum sentences, then there wouldn't be like a discriminatory effect because everyone would be handed the same mandatory right. minimum. So I guess how was it that it had a discriminant effect? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. So what by setting up mandatory minimums, what legislators did in effect was shift discretion from judges and corrections administrators to prosecutors. And so now it's really um, uh, up to prosecutors, first of all, to decide, are they going to charge a crime that comes with a mandatory minimum, right? Because you could charge a crime that doesn't come with a mandatory minimum. Um, and, you know, then how are they going to kind of negotiate down from that man mandatory minimum if they use it as kind of a stick to um, induce folks to plea bargain? Um, and so once you look at it from that point of view, you can see how racial bias would uh, creep into the, <laughs> the system quite yeah. easily. I'm interested in what the role of like the war on drugs plays in mm -hmm. sort of the system of mass incarceration because I think I make the mistake of sort of thinking of them as one and the same when they're really not. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of interested in what to what extent does the war on drugs account for the system of mass incarceration? Right, right. I'm not sure that we can reduce the system of mass incarceration to the war on drugs, mm -hmm. but the war on drugs definitely played a very crucial role. Um, and and here's why. Um, in the early 1980s, um, because there had been this increase in people going through the system of arrests and court processing, um, you had a, a system of prisons around the country that were um, incredibly overcrowded. Um, and many states faced a decision about what to do about this. Should they build more prisons? Should they try to find ways to um, decarcerate. Um, and actually the thinking at the time was that secure confinement and incarceration as we think of it now was not actually a good idea, that it wasn't um, solving the problem of crime, that it was you know, creating more criminogenic um, situations for folks. And so um, the war on drugs then came at this like really bad moment <laughs> where um, uh, the federal government, again, by declaring a war on drugs and then providing, under the Reagan administration, providing police departments with increased resources and motivation to arrest people for drug offenses, you see arrests for drug offenses skyrocket, particularly among African Americans. And then states, you know, had this problem of what to do with all these people. Um, and for many um, in that kind of racialized political climate of the late 1980s, the best thing to do, the quickest solution was to build more prisons. The way that prosecutors applied mandatory minimums was just one way that sentencing disproportionately harms low-income communities of color targeted by the war on drugs. It was also clear from the very design of mandatory minimums that the war on drugs was meant to target black Americans. Bear with me as I explain what I mean. This does get a bit technical, but what I'm about to explain really does describe the extent to which the war on drugs was so blatantly racist. So the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 established a 100 to one disparity between the distribution of powder cocaine and crack cocaine. That means that possession of even five grams of crack cocaine would result in the same five-year mandatory minimum sentence as possession of 500 grams of powder cocaine. Essentially, this disparity gave the DEA license to more harshly punish people using and selling crack cocaine. The dramatic sentencing disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine was particularly unusual because they're practically the same drug. But if you dig a little deeper, it becomes very clear that this disparity was very intentionally designed. Powder cocaine tends to be consumed in white wealthy circles, while crack cocaine, which is much cheaper, was more accessible in low-income black neighborhoods. Abregal was dealing small amounts of powder cocaine when he first came to the attention of the DEA. In his case, 
The DEA waited until he had sold enough powder cocaine to trigger the highest possible mandatory minimum. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison for dealing about one kilogram of cocaine. One of the crux of my um, uh, case in point was that I was entrapped because what happened was I, I actually um, had five sales. I think it was five sales to the DEA agent, the federal agent that, that, it, that arrested me. They arrested me on the fifth sale. So the question, if somebody's committing a crime, why won't you arrest them on the first sale, right? But, but that wasn't enough. They, wanted, they were trying to cultivate me to a level where I would actually, because if I would have sold them a kilo, which is what they wanted, um, I would be looking at a life sentence in prison. Because at that time, mandatory, min mandatory sentences, the mandatory minimum for selling, I think it was over 1,000 grams or a kilo of cocaine, was a life sentence, mandatory life sentence. So their whole goal was to cultivate a relationship with me to get me to that point in the hopes that I would become a government informant, which I refused to do. So I was a first-time offender. I had no criminal background, no juvenile, no nothing. Um, when I was arrested, I was actually taken to the federal building downtown Boston. But, and I heard them talking, right, because there was a point system on the federal level. Um, for, for offenders. So if you were like a first-time offender, there was a point center. And so I would actually would have done three years, eight months on the federal level. But what they did was they bounded, because they knew, that I, because I wouldn't turn over to be a government informant, they bounded me over to the state level. And on the state level, the mandatories had already kicked in, and it was about amounts of cocaine. It was by, your sentencing was by, was by amounts of cocaine. And so I was facing 20 years on the state level. So they bound me over to the state because I wouldn't become a government, government informant, and I faced the maximum time. The other piece that didn't happen is in most cases, when you, when you look at it, a young person my age, at the age of 20, facing that kind of time, first-time offender, they offered deals. They didn't even offer me a deal. I had to go to trial. And so I was convicted by trial, right? They didn't offer me any plea bargains, any nothing, because they were really burning that I wouldn't become a government, because their expectation was that, hey, this is a young guy. If he's facing this much time, more than likely he'll become a CI, and as a CI we could use him to. But I was like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not putting my family, myself, my future at risk to becoming a government informant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, what do you remember feeling about receiving the mandatory minimum and not having any flexibility with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely thought it was unjust. You know what I mean? Because you know, it was about. It wasn't like mandatory minimums for drugs was like to me the only crime that I saw that was up for trial or up for judgment that didn't consider anything other than the amount a person was caught with didn't didn't allow the judge to bring in any other elements of the person and who they are right so I just talked about a lot of things about the social dynamics of myself as a human being growing up in a urban community that um, that could have been some factors that could have been considered um, to give some leniency you know it was my first time never been in juvenile uh, detention or anything like that before. It was an opportunity, but none of that could be considered, right? And then after being in convicted and incarcerated, watching people who committed manslaughter, who killed people, literally, um, uh, go home before I went home. Sometimes go home and come back two or three times before I got out once um, was challenging. But, you know, I kept on understanding there was a spiritual foundation that I had built before I went in, and I, and I held to that, and I understood that you know, nothing happens but that which God allows to happen. So my focus was on the fact that there's a greater, there's a greater um, purpose in all of this and how am I going to maximize where I'm at to come home and be able to sit in the seat that I'm sitting now and talking to you where, like, I'm not returning to those spaces or places ever again. Can you describe uh, how the trial process went? The trial process, very interesting. I mean, again, it was my first experience, but, you know, I knew I was going away, you know, and this question is even interesting because one of my best friends, his birthday was like a couple weeks ago, and we were just talking about how, you know, one day I was driving through Common Square, and he still lives in Common Square, and um, I was driving through Common Square at the time when I was going to trial, right before the, the day of my trial was starting. I think, no, as a matter of fact, it was the second, I had one, had one day of trial that I was going for the second day. And he was talking about how I pull, we pulled over, we were having a conversation. I was telling him that, like, I'm getting ready to go away for a long time. And he was reflecting on that, how I actually told him, because I knew. I mean, basically, I was caught red-handed. It was like a hand-to-hand sale. I mean, how do you beat that, right? And you got a guy on the stand who was a federal agent talking about he was just in debunked court with the, with the president. You know, when they asked him his profile, like, what jury is not going to believe that this guy is actually fully telling the truth, right? So 
I knew that I was, um, so it was, the trial was just like, you know, what I would say, quick and dirty. <laughs> and, you know, and then I was convicted. Yeah, and so you mentioned that when you went to prison, you were leaving behind, you know, your girlfriend, mm -hmm. daughter, and mother. And so I was wondering, um, what was the effect of that absence on all those people yeah. in hindsight? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was traumatic. You know what I mean? It was traumatic, man. I mean, you know, it was traumatic. That's all. That's the only way I can define it, man. You know, there's, you know, there are times in which I could say, you know, it, where I can, where the, tra the trauma for me of not being there for my daughter was major, uh, especially when there were times where my daughter would come to visit me and, you know, she would leave and, you know, she would, like, they'd have to tear her out of my arms. She would be crying, you know, excessively. You know, I remember one specific time where, you know, where my cell was in, uh, in the cell block, where my cell was, was like, you could see and hear, you could see the, the parking lot where people pulled up and parked. And I used to have my family pull up and park where, like, I, I could look out my window and see, like, they, they pulled up. It was daytime. And then and one time I remember having a visit my daughter left, they left, and my daughter was with them, and they left, and I put my, I could, I could hear, I mean, this, this, the distance probably was like, to the parking lot, I would say probably, uh, I'm not good with miles, but it's probably like a quarter mile. I could hear my daughter screaming and crying from my cell window, you know, so that was a tough time, you know what I mean, to like, to know that, like, that's the kind of pain that a choice and a decision has caused. And so in terms of your experience physically in prison, what do you remember your first impression of the facility being and, and where were you? Yeah, so I went to Walpole, which is the highest maximum state-level prison um, that you can go to. You know, at that time when you, got, when you were convicted to go to state prison, you went to Walpole first. And I never forget when the back of the van was opened up. It was a gloomy day. It was a rainy day. Um, there were hawks flying up above. Um, the wall was like dingy gray. It was an iron class door. And all I could think about was it was a place of death. Like literally like when I when they opened up the back of the van and were letting us out, it, it felt like you were walking in to a death trap. And so I never forget one of the things I said, um, as, I, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, and having established a spiritual foundation, I said, you know, I talked to God, and I said, God, I'm going in here, and I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to survive and to make it out. And um, so could you describe what your day-to-day -day life would look like uh, while you were incarcerated? I, 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 when I start out with just noise, you know. Um, I remember, like, when I was transferred from Walpole to uh, Concord, um, they had just opened up what they call the J's, which is a new sort of housing structure inmate housing structure within the prison and but you before you got there you went to this space that was called new man's and new man's was about i don't know 800 inmates open space old school gated uh, cell cell block doors right bars and you know when everybody was actually up and talking it sounds like clamor like it would literally sound like like very very loud and just clamor all day long. Like that alone can create a level of insanity, right? It's like, you can't shut that noise off. It's like, because everybody, it's like you got 800 people having 800 different conversations or 400 different conversations within a space. And it's just clamor, 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 clamor. And that, that was one of the things that stood out to me as I reflected back was that moment. Cause it was like, you know, I've watched like movies and stuff where they have, they have had like, um, like, um, like these devil heads coming out of walls and it's all made and it, 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 it's sort of like that's how I felt I felt like it was just like a bunch of like like insanity so that's one piece of it and then you you, you know you, again you had a lot of conflicts you know people were being thrown into institutions where you know there weren't any lines drawn like they didn't have a system to like what they call now like STG where your gang's affiliated and you get separated by this and that they didn't have a lot of that then and so you had people bumping into each other getting into fights you know on site you know, you have situations where people couldn't sit at certain tables, you know, because you were from Boston or you were from Springfield or you wasn't, you know, people didn't know you, you couldn't sit at this table or that table. So there's a lot of social dynamics that exist within that environment. Um, but I was pretty good. <laughs> Do you remember the moment of being released? What was that like? Oh, man, that was like, again, it was like being arrested was a dream. 
being arrested was like a dream. You know, it was like it was like unreal. You know, it was hard to process. You know, because you know you figure decades. You know, being away from everything you know and love and understand, and you know, and then being released to that was like, like I, I it's almost like I blanked out on it to be honest with you because I didn't really. It was too much to process. And who did you first see when you were released? Uh, my nephew. My nephew picked me up. I have a nephew that's a fireman, and uh, he came to pick me up. And um, he always says, that he, he always remembers me running to the car. <laughs> As we've heard about in previous episodes, punishment doesn't end in the concrete confines of prison. The mark of a criminal record follows people in the years and even decades after completing a formal sentence. Michelle Alexander is the author of The New Jim Crow, and she compares the status of people recently released from prison to that of black people living in the Jim Crow South. She argues that the war on drugs systematically disenfranchises black people and bars them from jobs, housing, and higher education, just like Jim Crow laws did up until about 1965. Her book shows that many Jim Crow laws have modern equivalents that have been made possible by the current day justice system. For example, poll taxes, literary tests, and the infamous grandfather clause prevented many black people from voting in the Jim Crow South. These measures might now be outlawed for their blatantly racist implications, but they've been replaced with felon disenfranchisement laws. These laws deny people with felony convictions the right to vote. There's about 6.1 million Americans who can't vote because of a felony conviction. And this has disproportionately impacted black communities. One in every 13 African Americans in the country has lost their voting rights due to felon disenfranchisement laws. What felon disenfranchisement does in practice is give politicians license to deny black people representation and continue to cause harm to communities of color. Here's another example of the undeniable similarities between Jim Crow and our current system of mass incarceration. During the Jim Crow era, many black people were explicitly barred from applying to certain jobs and living in certain neighborhoods. Now these exclusions have been replaced with the dreaded box on employment, housing, and college application forms that ask if applicants have a criminal record. Criminal record checks are another mechanism that has essentially legalized discrimination against black people. As a result of discrimination against formerly incarcerated people, black men with criminal histories are unemployed at a rate of 35% and black women at a much higher rate of 44%. Homelessness is another problem that black returning citizens experience at much higher rates than their white and Latinx counterparts. But despite these long-term obstacles, some are able to move past their criminal convictions, but they usually need the right resources, support of family and friends, and as Abergal describes, the will to persevere. Abergal is one of the rare few who has thrived after completing his prison sentence. So what kind of support did you have uh, upon release? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I came home. My mom was living in a condominium. She had a room for me. You know, I had good support. You know what I mean? I have, a, I have a very good family. You know, I come from a good, pretty good family structure, in essence, of people who, you know, who know and love and will love you. You know what I mean? Um, so I came home to stability, I'd say that, you know, to a level of, you know, good stability and, and a clean environment, you know, which I think is essential to, as a jumping off point for anyone being released from, from, from those circumstances. Yeah, and so did the prison system sort of prepare you at all for reentry? I guess in terms of housing, education, or vocational skills. Yeah, um, for me, not not necessarily. You know, the preparation for me was again. You know, I went through my own process. I put together almost like my own template for what I thought transition should look like for for, for me, and it's it's actually what I'm sharing with other men who are being released, or, or when I talk to men who are released about what they should be thinking about, how they should be thinking. Like, I really spent a lot of time, you know, processing what transitioning and transitioning in a healthy way from an isolated environment could look like, you know. And in many, and in many cases, a lot of what I was fortunate enough to think through um, has come true. I did a lot of social um, 
processing when I was incarcerated. I remember I used to do things like when I came home from prison, people used to wonder how come I knew how to drive and navigate streets that I used to navigate back, you know, when I was, wasn't incarcerated. And it was because I used to do these mental simulations of, like, taking a ride in the car. And that's how, like, I stayed connected. Like, I would, like, actually visualize, like, leaving the street that I grew up on in Common Square, driving down Washington Street, taking a right, bearing left on Warren Street. Like, I would visualize, like, doing these things, like, as ways of keeping my mind in tune with the outside world. Yeah, and so then uh, you so you were able to find housing because of the support of your parents. But in terms of education and then also a job, how did that sort of process of receiving those elements of stability go? Yeah, so I mean, I, again, I was planning and preparing before I was released from prison. I mean, I was already registered, pretty much registered for school, for college. When I left prison, I had my financial aid already in place. You know, I went to, I got my associate's degree from Westbury Community College. Um, I networked with my nephew's father who worked at MIT as a maintenance tech, as a maintenance manager, and I asked him like about the third year into my incarceration, uh, third year from prior to my release, I asked him about what would be the opportunities that he think that he might be able to help me. I was actually exploring different people in my family, my network, and he was like, you know, I think I might be able to get you a job, you know, as a maintenance technician, which is really a janitor, um, what they call it. That's a high high class name for it. And I said, yeah. So what would I have to do? And I hadn't worked really any specific job in the, in the institution because I didn't want to be one taking money away from people who really needed it because uh, you earn like a dollar a day for work that you do in an institution. And so, but I, but at that point he said, here are the things that you need to do. You know, you do floors, you do this. So I started like, I became a, what they call a cadre, a maintenance cadre in the prison and really worked on like, I, I was responsible for cleaning like a large bathroom, like doing a whole corridor. I would like strip and buff floors. I got like really, really good at doing that. So in January, I got out in November of 2001. In January 2002, I started my courses at Roxbury Community College, an associate's degree in social science. Uh, at that time, it was actually computer science, and then, but I switched my major, and then started a job at MIT as a maintenance technician. Hell yeah. So it sounds like you have an outstanding story. Like it's not the typical path that someone right. who's incarcerated would follow. And right. so why do you think that other people sort of have such a different, I guess, story and they, they there's a recidivism in their life yeah. and they come back and they don't necessarily have the support you did so yeah. i guess what are the sources of that discrepancy yeah well the major source is that th so i'm glad that you say that because my you know one of the things i always want people to understand is that my process my transition my transformation is an outlier to the norm right um and circumstances right people are built differently you know um all individuals have different levels of resiliency, ability, ability to bounce back, ability to maximize resources, ability, what they're dealing with in rebuilding relationships that they tore down, you know, which can uh, create a level of differentiation between support systems and, and, and non-support systems. And so, you know, the circumstances are the, is the difference, right? Because um, somebody can come home to what I came home to and also use and abuse and take advantage of it, right? There's some people who come home who have all those supports that I'm talking about in place, but they misuse and abuse those support systems because there are other things internally that they haven't dealt with in their character. So it's about individual profile and understanding individuals and what they need and what they need to repair um, so that they can have the best chance of re-entering in a positive manner. Abrigal's story demonstrates the many ways in which the criminal legal system in America has criminalized blackness. I asked him an admittedly difficult question. Where do we begin to dismantle these systems of racial oppression? I think that the solution is real, authentic conversation and dialogue, right? That conversation and dialogue that doesn't beat people up for telling the truth about how they feel and think about situations, but also but creates a level of dialogue that helps people understand that we're really all in this together to solve a problem, you know, which is the if it's just thinking from from a from a law enforcement standpoint, let's say crime and violence, right? Um, but crime and violence is a is a residual, right, of other factors, right?
right? Poverty and all these other things, right? And so we, we, we charge people at the highest level for making bad decisions uh, without understanding their full story. And, and the, the, the problem that we have is that we do that, we make, we, this sort of judgment is not across the board. It's in, it's, it, there's disparities in that, right? So you take a kid who gets caught with drugs, let's say, where at, where at, where at BU right now? on BU's campus, who has, who comes from an affluent family, right? It won't make the paper. Like, they'll set him aside, have a conversation, call his parents. They'll say, like, you need to get yourself together. His life won't be destroyed by that one bad decision because he's a BU student coming from an affluent family. You take that same scenario and you have a kid who gets caught with the same amount in a black community, parents that don't, that are, that are, that are, um, a parent structure that's fragmented and law enforcement lays hands on him and his whole future begins to take a downturn because of that one interaction. And so, and not and not taking into consideration that he too, like that kid at BU, is a kid. So a lot of it is really, I think, communication, understanding disparities, being sensitive to the humanity that exists in all of us and all human beings and being hopeful that we can turn the we can change the tide, man, for people in general, and that no one's born to be what they're doing. Thank you all for taking the time to listen to this episode of Criminalized. I hope that after listening to this episode, we all will heed Abregal's advice and have conversations with our friends, family, and community members about the central role that race plays in our criminal legal system. These conversations are all the more important because the drug war is not a thing of the past. America continues to fight a war on drugs against black and brown communities. If you're interested in advocating for the end of the drug war, check out the Drug Policy Alliance. They're a national group advocating for compassionate, science-based interventions to addressing substance use. They put out regular action alerts about ways to push for drug policy reform. At the state and local level, the Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council is a great organization to follow. Now that medical and recreational marijuana are legal in Massachusetts and many other states across the country, it's important that this new industry is centered on equity and justice for communities that have been historically targeted for using and dealing marijuana. The MRCC cares about this and are a leading voice in the private cannabis industry. Become a member to learn more about their work and attend the events that they host.